Welcome to the podcast series Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. I'm Stacey Jafta, and today I'll be chatting with Nuno Sitima, CEO of Mia Wallet. Mia Wallet is a Norwegian company in the center of excellence within mobile and digital payments and mobile wallets, providing state of the art certified technology in 18 countries. Nuno, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How's your day been? Uh, it's busy. I think everybody's back from vacation and cleaned up their mailboxes. So it's like second <laughs> week of September. Things It's like a wave of things coming up. So, But it's good. It's a good sign. Talking about cleaning up your mailbox, I think it's really funny. I always do to-do lists in the beginning of my day. And one of them is like getting my inbox to zero. And it's the most satisfaction that one can get is just seeing you've read all your emails, you've put them into folders. I'm also really into organization. So that for me is just fun. No, I've, uh, you know, I, um, I've used like say email clients very similar to how Gmail works. Yeah. So I never worked in an environment with folders. Really? Yeah. Never, never, never. Because actually in the old days, I was an Opera user from the old days and there was this email client called M2. They're very similar to how Gmail works, right? Without the folder structure. So I I have relied on search forever. I, I yeah, it's oh very gosh. very interesting that when I so I had a couple of colleagues that joined that came more from like Microsoft Outlook etc. I couldn't yes, relate yes, yes. to it. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. I could not imagine a world without files. Um, but yeah, search function has to be top notch for that to be efficient. But no, no, I'm really excited to dive right in. Hear more about your career journey and ultimately what led you to become CEO of Mia Wallet. Yeah. So just a bit of background about me. Uh, so I'm Portuguese originally, but I've spent half of my life now in uh, Norway. So, like I said, you know, I've been domesticated by Scandinavia <laughs> during all these <laughs> years. Um, so, uh, I started my career actually uh, more intra- I used to work for an international organization called Isaac that, you know, after, you know, business school, um, doing international in- internships, you know, multicultural understanding around the world. And by chance, I ended up here in Norway. There was never a big, uh, a big plan for that. Uh, yeah. And at the time, actually, uh, so this is 2001 already. Uh, so I'm giving clues about uh, how old I'm getting. Uh, <laughs> and um, and then actually Opera used to be a partner of Isaac. So a lot of people, a lot of interns at Opera. And so Opera is an, it was an Norwegian company uh, with not really any business in Norway. Just, it was founded in Norway and so brought people from all, all over the world to Oslo. And so I started as an intern at the time, 2002. I started there. And uh, and then I stayed there for many, many years. Uh, so all the way from an intern to the exec team in the end. Before wow. That's unheard of. Well, actually, in Opera, even the current CEO, he started almost at the same time as me as an intern. That's also. fantastic. So we, we had quite a few group of people. I think, uh, you know, I, I think it was a great place to work because, uh, you know, we got people from all over the world to join. And it was a quite entrepreneurial company. Like every two years or year and a half, you were doing something new. Uh, and a lot of new people joining all the time and doing business all over the world. So I think it was a great school. 
Uh, and I think, you know, I think some of the values that the founders put in the company at the time, I think they really valued also loyalty to the company and people yeah. that, you know, put on the shirt kind of thing. Um, so so that, that was actually a very core value. Uh, even today, like the the founder of Opera made a new company called Vivaldi. And I think mm-hmm. uh, I have a feeling 80% of the people working there are ex-Opera because they are so loyal to him. Yeah. Kind of uh, yeah. I, I might have the 80% wrong, but it's quite many, I would say. That's fantastic. Uh, so, so I think those values stayed with me, actually. Uh, I, I really value that people have... Uh, um, like loyalty, passion for the company they work for. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So I spent many years there, did many different things, spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, and then Opera Mini launched uh, and became very big in so-called emerging markets. You know, Southeast Asia, Africa, South America. So I spent a lot of time expanding our business there, um, both uh, you know developing and leading the product to to be more adjusted to those markets, but also doing partnerships both with internet companies and telecom. So many different things I did yeah. uh, there, always in product and business development and let's say, you know, go to market uh, strategies. Yeah. Uh, and then um, after Opera was acquired uh, and listed on NASDAQ, um, Opera went from many different owners and situations through the years. But the, the last two, three years there that I worked, uh, I started doing fintech. So the, the new owners came in and they looked at, we had a lot of users in Africa. Uh, and then they said, okay, is, are there other services we can launch? Uh, and that, uh, then I started work on the fintech space, both on micro lending a bit, but the, the big project I had was to start Opay in, in mm-hmm. Nigeria. So I did that for a while uh, and then moved more to M&A strategy. Uh, and then I, around two years back, I decided it was my time in opera was kind of done. You know, I had done everything and that I need to do. And I had a very nice, comfortable, strategic job, but I decided I wanted to, I miss actually driving the business every day, having my team, etc. So then I had the opportunity to join a CEO of Mail Wallet. So, so that was very interesting. You know, the, the company had been acquired by a VC out of Norway, they needed somebody to bring some new energy and uh, uh, re-energize the company and, and think about you know a company that had a really good technical team and a good product, uh, how to scale that. So so then I decided to take on that challenge. So it's been good, you know. I started last year, we doubled the team already, and a lot of new products in the pipeline. How weird was it working for a company like Opera for years and years and years, and then? going into a brand new space, probably new culture, new way of doing things. How was that for you? I think it was actually easier than what I thought, to be honest. But I think okay. that has more, um, let's say, uh, less a self-brag, let's put it like this, but more, <laughs> um, more I think, the opera uh, culture. Opera was extremely okay. entrepreneurial and flexible company. Mm. You know, when you have always worked with people from, you know, we used to be like 45 nationalities here in Oslo. Uh, yeah. you know, opera, opera was, you know, the founders was very Scandinavian company. Then we grew and had a lot of people from other parts of the world. In the end, Opera was at the Chinese owners. So you can imagine that although it was called Opera, it was not the same company. And so when I, I was there for quite many years and 
I would say the company is, I feel like I worked for 10 different companies in that time. Yeah. With one benefit that you were there, right? I think the benefit is that you don't have onboarding, right? You just change roles and adjust <laughs> to new situations, but uh, you you have to be productive from day one. So so that, that I think actually prepared me a lot to, to move. And, um, and I think the company I started now, the culture is a bit similar in the sense that, you know, we have uh, management here in Oslo. Uh, I have uh, then the se- half of my management team here, half of my management team in Riga, in the Baltics. And uh, that was very similar to Opera, uh, where we had the Norway, Sweden, Poland. So with engineering remote. So uh, I also was a bit picky in the company I chose to join, right? that I felt had the culture and setup that I could contribute to. You were an intern and made your way up to the exec team at Opera, which in these days is so uncommon. I've mm. noticed a trend amongst the youth hopping from job to job every one to two years. They're a mixed, a, a bunch of different opinions on this. Mm. I've heard some saying, use your youth to find what you want. And others saying the youth lack the idea of loyalty and perseverance, which is something you touched on earlier. What are your thoughts on people getting disqualified from jobs because of hopping? And do you have anything to say to those early in their careers that are maybe doing this? Yeah. So I, I feel very fortunate that I joined a company that I really fell in love with, right? Uh, with Opera and everything we had. So, of course, not everybody gets that situation. But, but if I look at... Uh, I think when young people start in their career, if I, you know, I feel very old saying it like this, but my advice is a bit, I think people have to use their first years to develop their skills. Uh, I saw a lot of situations of people because they get a bit of a pay rise, et cetera. They just change jobs all the time. And of course, now I'm talking about people that work in our sector, right? You work in technology, you have uh, you know good education and, and good roles. Yeah. I, I saw sometimes people overthink a bit salary before you know in their 20s i think there my advice is more be in a position where you can actually develop things and work because if people are changing every couple of years i think it's really difficult for them to get really deep responsibilities you just do the math right you hire somebody first six months the person is not really productive yeah they're learning they're learning etc then you are productive for a year and then you leave, you know, let's say you have a three months termination. So that meant that you had, you know, one and a half year of productive work in that company. Uh, unless you really feel stuck or unless you feel, okay, this is a great opportunity. Um, I think there is a lot of value to spend a bit more time. Like I spent a lot of time in one company and I had many yeah. <laughs> discussions with myself if, if I should have changed or not. So I don't think I am the rule. Um, mm. because I think maybe it was a bit too much. But remember, the company was acquired a few times and changed ownership. So it was, in, in a way, not the same company. But I would say yeah. jumping every couple of years. Uh, I, I am a big negative. I personally am a bit negative to hire people that do that. Yeah, you will not look. Will you not interview them? Well, it depends, right? If it's somebody that is in their third, fourth year of career and they changed after two years, I, I think that is common, right? Because first job, you don't know what's happening uh, mm-hmm. and you might change. 
But let's say if I see somebody that in the last eight years had five jobs, I yeah yeah, I would even you know three jobs in three years. Uh, I I would say it's uh, it's not something I feel very comfortable because it just creates a situation that if if I'm going to invest in somebody, and then you know it's a big investment, right? You you bring somebody on board, you train them, you groom them, you support them. And then when they become productive, they just leave because they can get a, a bit more money somewhere else. That is very, very difficult, I think, for a company and for a manager. Right? Yeah. Because the yeah. cost uh, of uh, getting new people is very difficult. So so that's just a bit my first kind of um, uh, reaction. But it, there's always situations, right? Why do people leave? And you can, you can deep course. dive into that. But. Uh, I, I, w- I would recommend people think more about what skill sets am I gaining and can I have three, four years of productive work? Th- that's what I feel like when I break down my career. Yeah. This is what I felt my 20s were. You know, I started yeah. working fairly young. I was 22, 23 when I joined Opera. And I think the first six, seven years, you know, I... Uh, they were really crucial in educating me because I, I started as assistant product manager, then I moved to business development uh, after you know after one year and a half, and then I had four or five years really doing partnerships, and that really yeah. taught me a lot. Um, and I could be, you know, I could be good at my job if you understand what I mean, right? Yeah, I knew what I was doing, and and I, and I could contribute a lot to the company, and that that's the reason why then I could, you know, I knew quite a few years back that you know I had a path to reach the objective because I knew you I had ought- proven myself. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. You also, as you mentioned, had different positions. You even started Opate from scratch, which is something I'd love to to get deeper into. You had to help them get licensing, building teams from zero. And there are so many different ways to get into a regulated market. There's Mm. partnering, acquiring a business, applying for a license, and not everyone needs their own license. How do you know which path to take? And, And do you have any advice for those looking to get a license? Oh, that's quite a good question. So I think depends the situation where you are, right? So when we were in Opera and we incubated Opay, of course, we were in a Nasdaq trading company with funds, etc. cetera. Uh, then the decision was, what's the fastest path to market kind of thing? Uh, so when we did our analysis, we understood that there was a lot of, let's call it, uh, parked mobile money licenses that people were not proactively using. So we could acquire a company 
and go through the process to get approved for a new license, etc. Uh, we also knew that at the time, the Central Bank of Nigeria was not issuing new licenses. So in a way, that was the only way, if we wanted the license, yeah. to get it. And that is something, you know, and I know you guys have a lot of listeners in Africa. I spent quite a lot of time doing licensing in Africa. That was very, very interesting phenomenon I saw. And this is not just Africa. I think most central banks in the world, I saw the same in Europe. Yeah. Uh, if you are looking for a license, one thing is what the regulation says, but you have to understand what is the political willingness of the central banks to issue new mm. licenses. So even if by law it says, okay, you know, if you want a license, this is how it works. Uh, I think people misunderstand sometimes that the role of the central banks is to regulate the market also and control the market in certain yeah. forms, right? And sometimes, although it, the law exists that you can apply for a license, it might be the political uh, environment that at that time, the central bank is not interested. And I give an example. So I know that in Nigeria at the time when we applied, when we acquired uh, a company from um, Telnet, a company called Paycom, uh, the central bank was not interested in launching new licenses because there was like 15, I, I don't remember the number, but I'd say, Quite many licenses that were given that were not being used. The central bank has also had introduced new capital requirements. So their focus was that people that had licenses started using those licenses uh, and that they capitalized the companies. So, so I think it's important that uh, if you are starting a project, you know, and I always find central banks are very open. If you mm -hmm. just book a meeting, go talk, people will tell you what's going on in that environment. So that, Why so do people that, sit on licenses? I, this is a phenomenon. Uh, I, I think it's speculation, to be honest. Because, okay. uh, you know, uh, a lot of times uh, central banks, they open to say, okay, now we want to... A lot of these things are attached to financial inclusion drives. To so say, okay, we are going to drive financial inclusion mm. and we need more more money providers, for example. So they say, okay, now we are open. And then many people apply. I think some people apply because they really want to do something. Some people mm -hmm. apply, they think they want to do something, but they don't know how. <laughs> and then <laughs> gotcha. they, cannot get and they cannot get funding, right? So, you know, they apply, but then they actually don't know how to, to get it off the board or, or they don't get funding. Uh, but I think there's also just speculators, right? People that apply and to, with the objective to selling it. Um, mm -hmm. I'll give an example. So the one we bought from Paycom. So Paycom belonged to Telnet Group that started InterSwitch. So InterSwitch was, I think, started by Telnet. Yes. Uh, so they were using it, but in a very narrow fashion. So they were using it uh, for the Norwegian Nigerian bottling company, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so they were using it to pay salaries there. So they were using the license, but for a very narrow use case. And, and for them... I don't think it was so profitable because you did scale, right? So yeah. it made sense for them to use the license, but they, they never scaled the business. So, so I think, uh, you know, they were a very good partner and they were very happy that we could take it. And I remember uh, even the person that today is still the country manager of Ope in Nigeria, he was the, the, the BU leader for that company, Paycom. Uh, he was one of my first hires. So for me, it was great because I both got a good partner locally that knows the market very well and i also get my first hires from there both the head of nice. engineering 
and the country manager. So, so for me, it was almost like uh, a perfect uh, solution. So that was our situation. Yeah. Uh, so I would advise that first understand what is the climate uh, and who okay. has licenses and if the central bank is issuing licenses. Uh, what we see also is that a lot of times licenses require a lot of capital uh, to start because, okay. you know, uh, the central bank needs to make sure that you actually have money, right? If you deal with fintech, especially, uh, which can be difficult for, for small companies. But then I think people should more look into partnership, uh, look into partnership so somebody can sponsor you, quote unquote. So this means what's that. The, what's the pro of doing that? So the pro of doing that is that you don't need to apply for a license, right? You can get a bank or somebody with a license to to let you use their license. Of course, the cons is that you are a bit dependent on your partner and you might not own the users, right? So Interesting. Uh, but it's a good way to get started while you apply for your own license, right? And you get a partner. There, so so I think a lot of people are looking into this, and and I think this is one of the things that I saw. I spent a lot of time in Africa, like I said, and uh, I think the banks in Africa. I don't. I would not call the banks. There would always be exceptions, so just take it with mm-hmm. a grain of salt. But the majority of the banks they have very poor retail presence. That's why mobile money is so popular, right? Because it's mm-hmm. hard to find bank branches and services. Yes. Uh, so I actually think there is a huge opportunity for banks to partner with fintechs because I think banks are not so focused in doing agent networks and services for the for the majority of the population. Uh, and I think a lot of fintechs have amazing ideas, you know, in the remittance space, in the micro lending space, in the mobile money space, in micro insurance. So there are so many areas that I think that if banks create an environment where fintechs can partner with them. Everybody can win there. So I, 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 think, uh, I think that would be quite important to, to, I would say, to contribute to the development of the ecosystem. Well, thank you for that. That was really helpful. I have learned a lot from, from this portion. And, and something I would really love to hear more about and learn more about from you is the product space. And, and the reason I'm asking this is we've had many fintechs reach out to us expressing their struggle with finding product people as they're so high in demand. What do you believe makes someone good at product development? And what do you specifically look out for when making a product hire? So uh, I think the number, there's a couple of things I always look for. One is there, you know, uh, the passion for the product that you are hiring towards. And now I'm talking in the context of, of let's say, startups or scale-up companies. Uh, a lot of people that are product managers, some of them are more ad- administrators, if you can call it like this. You know, they know how yeah. to run a process. Uh, but I think if you have a smaller company, or a scale-up, you really need to bring somebody that is, has a huge passion for the product that you want to build. Uh, and then they have a great ability also to problem-solve because what I see in the product development of smaller companies is that there is no manual there how things should be done. You need to find creative solutions for your, pro- uh, for your product and problem-solving. So those two things for me are really, really important, that people have that culture of, 
getting the product to market, not to follow a process that is super, you know, formal and super theoretically correct kind of thing. Um, because I think the product manager, you know, I see it, it's almost like the CEO of the product, right? He, needs yeah. to understand, he or she needs to understand everything, needs to understand you know how the market works. It needs to understand what features can resonate with users. It needs to understand metrics. Uh, so I think that's what makes it very, very difficult because you are as- actually asking for a, you know, almost like the CEO of your product for this kind of companies. For bigger companies, yeah. sometimes product managers are more managing the development process, which is a bit different process. But for me, that's the most important problem solving, and uh, and passion for what we are building is really important. Do you believe in case studies? So I know that there's a few businesses that we work with that like to give candidates case studies to see how they think. You you were talking about problem solving. How can you relay that in an interview or really dig deep? Is there anything specific you do when interviewing um, to help you identify the right talent? Um, I think for for me, it's a lot about... um, Pro, uh, like case studies work sometimes, but I would say there is more to understand other skills in my view, like communication, okay. uh, ability to to abstract concepts and communicate those concepts. So I think seeing how a product manager presents is really important because they need to be the ambassador of that product internally and externally. You know, they mm-hmm. need to be able to talk to the board and explain what they are building. At the same time, they need to discuss with an engineer where we are going at, right? So so it's quite a, a broad spectrum there. So I think case studies are good for that, just to see how the candidate performs in explaining what they want to do. The the problem solving, I, I like to, to go more through that uh, with real examples and trying to understand a bit uh, uh, what is their attitude towards things. Uh, Are there any questions you ask in interviews that you have found to be just, this is the question I love to ask. I love to hear people's responses. I have a couple of clients that have really interesting, unique questions that almost have nothing to do with the job. Um, but is there anything you ask that you feel is really unique to yourself or something you ask almost in every interview? Um, I, I always ask, and, and I, I don't remember who, who it was, but I saw this being done with this job. I always ask, you know, from their current team to describe the person they like the least to work with. <laughs> and it's nothing personal. It's not about that. is the person rude or not rude, but more like, you know, what are the things that really tick you off? Yeah. Uh, and uh, And also, if they can describe what people don't like about them like you know who's the person and this is really interesting and i do it is not that is such an interesting question and it's not really to understand if the person is good or bad it's more that i know myself and the things how i am right yeah how i communicate what it's like if you come to me with a lot of theories and models i don't listen i can't my brain does not work like that. Right? <laughs> a lot of people love structure. You know, you're talking about your folders. I cannot relate. Yes. Right? <laughs> my, my brain is very chaotic. 
okay. so, uh, so for me, uh, of course, when you build a team, you need to have different uh, different combination of people. But there's one thing about culture, right? And I mostly want to understand, can this person work in a culture where a lot of things are not super organized kind of thing? Uh, because I will always prioritize, you know, moving things forward than spending a lot of time in internal systems. Um, I think that there has to be a level of, uh, not, you cannot control everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and you need to be agile on things. Otherwise, you are spending more time, you know, in an internal system than doing your product and building your product. Especially systems outside. So the only systems I care about is engineering and sales. Everything else, you know, and accounting and finance, of course, that has to be in order. But what I mean is like, let's spend a lot of time on HR systems. Let's spend a lot of time on, mm. you know, it's, I, 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 I think it's, um, how do you say, it comes in stages kind of thing. So that's what yeah. I'm saying. You need to take some decisions. So. So I think for me, it's just to understand what do people expect. If people expect to join, the onboarding is fantastic. They get a manual. <laughs> yeah. Some people expect those kind of things, right? Uh, so yeah. it's more that for me because I don't want people to join and um, and be unhappy, right? Uh, yeah. So that question is more for that because if the things they really detest about others are things I can recognize in myself, or in man in key managers, then I know we are setting ourselves for problems, and you know, sure, not giving a fair shot to that person. I find this very interesting because it's almost come up on the last three episodes talking about structures, talking about fintechs, whether you're a fit or not, um, and I think the the consensus is as b the bigger you grow, obviously you need to have more processes in place, but this is not a couple of thousand business where you have a process for everything, a system for everything. Um, and if you need that, this is just not the business for you. It's like, uh, I always laugh. Like when people ask me, uh, I say like when I, when I was discussing joining this job and then people would say, okay, uh, Opera has businesses everywhere. How did you guys grow? Did you open an office and things like this? I said, no, we, we hire a business development person. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, and then if there's some business, then we can look into other things. But I always say, you will never hear from me that, the, you know, if you work for a company that the first person you hire is the receptionist or personal assistant, <laughs> then you are in trouble. A lot of companies are like that. Right? Crazy, crazy, uh, crazy. Yeah. Or, or get an office, right? Yeah. Why are you getting an office yeah. if you don't have any business? That's so true. So I am very, like... Um, yeah, I, I, I think the, I have some cultural things that I, I think um, I have a lot of respect for the money of investors to not spend it in things that are not core to the business sometimes. Beautiful. Nuno, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. I had a laugh here and there and learned a ton. So thanks again. You are welcome, Stacey. Always a pleasure. Awesome. Where's the best place for listeners to reach you? Uh, just LinkedIn. Uh, you know, uh, I've tried many times to get a social media presence. I don't have the diligence for it or the patience. So <laughs> contact me on LinkedIn. Um, and, uh, you know, 
uh, either for personal stuff or even for, you know, if you guys, we do digital payments in Mayo Wallet and we have a soft cost product coming up. So if you are interested in the digitalization of payments, we can have a chat about that also. That's my plug awesome. for the company. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Thanks so much again, Nuno. Okay. Have a great day, Steve. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Talking Success, Connecting the Global Fintech Community. Feel free to follow us on LinkedIn at Talent in the Cloud. And if you're interested in exec talent, expanding your team, or you yourself are looking for a new, exciting change in your career, check out our website, talentinthecloud.io.